Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another episode of Lines Up by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe. With me today, as a lot, not always, but a lot, is Francis from Hell of a Way to Die and Shocks from those legal shit posts that you read. <laughs> this is this the Thursday night. It's International Men's Day today, so happy International Men's Day to the both of you. Uh, finally, we're getting uh, recognized three white uh, middle class men. We just don't get enough recognition in this world, so. It's good that somebody recognizes us for once. Dude, rock to you, and also to you. <laughs> I don't know how to. I don't know how to uh, celebrate this day other than like uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, get drunk, Circle and watch jerk. football. Like I, I don't. I don't know what like what I'm supposed to do here. No, give like a helping football. hand to your giving helping hand to your fellow men, and just you know, just a light circle jerk. It's fine <laughs> as long as you get to make eye contact. Yeah, just really intense eye contact the entire time. Perfect. And you know what goes great with eye contact and hand jobs? <laughs> being in the Navy. Anyway. Being eaten by sharks. And today we're <laughs> today we're talking about the USS Indianapolis. Um only the second most fucked up thing that come out of Indianapolis after our producer. I'm just kidding. I don't we think, love you. No, he's not know. he's not from Indy. No, he's <laughs> he, I he's mean, got- in my mind, all of Indianapolis. All of Indiana is Indianapolis, and I refuse to let anybody prove me otherwise. Yeah, I mean that's like whenever uh, like anybody says they're from like Southeast Michigan, they just default to Detroit. Yeah, it's, that's the only thing anybody's ever heard of, um, other than like Pontiac because it has a car named after it. Um, I've been to so, Pontiac, Michigan. So uh, the reason why we're talking about the Indy today is uh, is it is one of the largest losses of life at sea in American history, uh, which has been honored the only way America knows how. Via Nicolas Cage film, um, wait, which, what's, which what's is Nicolas truly Cage film? Uh, like only the Brave or something like that. I did not write it down because I'm a hack and a fraud, and I have to it, look it up. It's on a, <laughs> it's on one of the streaming services right now because I saw it, and it, it, it's just called USS Indianapolis, I think, or at the very least, like that's the title that they now market it under because whatever oh it was God. actually called was like so fucking terrible that they like. USS you know, just gave up on it. It's called USS Indianapolis Men of Courage. And it's okay, it came out in 2016. Oh my god, why have we not watched this yet? Uh, no, we, we have not to, don't down? we? He looks Nicolas Cage looks so intense as an admiral. Like did an admiral die on this too? Like look at him go. He's just Oh, like, we'll talk devastated. about the ad. We'll talk about the captain. Yeah. Now, you said you guys said that this was also brought up in Jaws, so I guess people who are fans of Jaws would also know because you you told me like oh that that I probably heard of it, but I I watched Jaws when I was five, and then I never watched it again because fuck that movie, it was scary to me. Um, 
<laughs> so I'm glad that we're doing the one about all the people that get eaten by sharks. It's gonna be fun for me. Uh, I mean, I, it's not like you live near a fucking ocean, dude. Look, you never know. <laughs> they're they're gonna they're gonna crawl up your toilet in Missouri. <laughs> First off, sharks can and have swum up the Mississippi River all the way up to Alton, Illinois, which is north of me. So it is a shark so racist that has to go to the south. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, like I get into the, uh, m- mostly in the ocean, I'm just worried about drowning. Uh, sharks is just like a secondary kind of thing. Like the ocean, the, uh, as, as a Midwesterner who didn't really see the ocean, uh, until they were a teenager, like it's just, it's so big and vast and full of monsters and we've only mapped 5% of it. So it's just like, I'm just going to stay here in the middle of Missouri forever. Um, and not ever touch an ocean. <laughs> we got the Jaws soundboard here. Shocks was so excited about getting to use this. Um, I had, I've never really lived around the ocean until now, and it's still super intimidating to me because it will fucking kill you. Like you'll just vanish, and no one will ever see you again. Right? There's just like when, when you read about it, sometimes it's just like, oh, watch out for the riptide, where you just get pulled out to o- to the ocean and disappear forever. It's like. Why is that a thing? Why would I be anywhere near that? Like, I don't go into the ocean beyond, like, my knees. Anything beyond... Uh, I mean, also, it's full of fish, so it's gross, but also, I don't want to die. <laughs> so, the ocean is pretty clean, at least where I am. Um, I can't speak to, like, wherever you've been. You know what? You know what you got in that You know what you got in that ocean? You got a lot of fish fucking and pooping, all right? <laughs> I mean, that's just, that, the same thing could be said for, like, where you live. I don't, there's not a lot of fucking and pooping going on in the, in uh, yeah, it's, anything it's, here. It's cow I mean, shit. If it does, it That's what's in the river in a there. Old and clean kind of way. It's not just like right. I'm pooping. It floats around my face now because <laughs> my air is my water and my water is my poop. You know this is this is discriminatory against people who are really into that kind of thing. <laughs> if that's how you want to live. That's fine. I'm just saying. <laughs> just I'm just saying. Shit don't tell everywhere. me the ocean is clean when it's full of fish that are fucking and pooping. It's time for this a good old-fashioned like, poop and fuck. This is the most Midwestern train of thought that I think I've ever heard off of Francis. <laughs> um, I, like, I've been caught in a riptide before, and it's fucking scary. It happened like a month ago, and I was out snorkeling, and I tried swimming back, and I realized I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I am going backwards. Um, and thankfully, there's yeah. someone much more experienced than me with me, and they, like pointed out that I need to swim like sideways and don't yep. fight the current or you'll die. Uh, so, you know, I live to podcast another day. Uh, so it's their fault that you have to listen to this. Yeah. Um, no, there's definitely uh, one of the beaches near where I grew up. Uh, someone used to die about like every summer just from like, you know, being a dipshit and like getting caught up in the riptide and not realizing what you're supposed to do and just getting like pulled out and exhausted themselves and fucking drowning. Maybe not every year, but like at least like every couple years growing up, there was like always a tourist who would die on the beach. Oh, that's that's generally who die. There's two kinds of people who die on the beach here. That's tourists, which we haven't had many recently because, you know, the world ending and uh, us who live here getting drunk and doing dumb shit, which, you know, guilty. Uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of like service members and former service members doing dumb shit in the ocean. No, after drinking. Ah, that's that seems Period pretty far fetched. I definitely don't remember a story from my station about uh, some Marine coming home from boot camp and deciding that he was going to swim to a buoy in the middle of December and having to get rescued by a bunch of dumb ghosties. 
Definitely not a thing that ever happened. Uh, speaking of the ocean, uh, the indie was uh, as smooth. it was known. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I'm not smooth. Uh, I don't have a good uh, podcasting game. Uh, it was a Portland class cruiser, and it was only like two of its class. The other being the Portland. Yeah, it, very. Uh, How'd they name it, Joe? Uh, I believe it was named after the city of Portland. Which one? Um, uh, so it was uh, uh, the third <laughs> the third class of a heavy cruiser to be developed by the uh, after the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, earning them the completely pointless nickname of Treaty Cruisers. Um, the reason for that was, it was the treaty was put in place after World War One to stop the any future arms race. Good thing that worked. And it, uh, it limited the UK, the US, France, Italy, and Japan by the amount of, of various different ships, like the tonnage of displacement. And uh, they had to be under 10,000 tons of displacement. So like these ships would be like 9,999, like something out of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, like it was like literally pointing the, the most it could possibly be with the ability to slap shit onto it later and then break the treaty, which they did. Um, uh, it also made sh- them like, as I remember, like really fucking stupid too, because you would get, you know, they would like have to make trade-offs. So essentially you could either like put a slap, a bunch of fucking armor on it, or you could slap a bunch of guns on it, but you couldn't really do both. Yes. So you ended up with a lot of like <laughs> really fucking dumb design ships where it was like, you know, they was either really top heavy because it was all like all guns and no armor or, you know, it had a bunch of armor, but it like couldn't shoot for shit. Like just like real like, you know, real military planning. This is the first one. It has a lot of guns, no armor um, and solid. Yeah, in case anybody knows where this is going, that ends up fucking it pretty bad. Um <laughs> The ship was launched in November of 1931 and commissioned in the same month of the next year. After her sea trials were complete, the Indy kind of just became like a VIP ship for some reason. Um, it was it was previously designated a flagship and therefore had a few like nicer living quarters uh, put on board. Uh, so before the start of World War One, it transported the president, FDR, and a few of his cabinet uh, members wherever they wanted to travel, uh, as well as the secretary of the Navy on a few occasions. Uh, it was pretty much a glorified limo or whatever. Um, it was also pretty quick, as I remember. That was also part of the, the, I think, the reason for that. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why it was picked for the mission that it wouldn't come back from as well. Uh, like, right. it, it could haul ass for a ship of its size. Um yeah, the Indy was stationed out of Pearl Harbor, uh, but it had just been moved up to the Johnson Atoll, uh, a small atoll, which is part of Hawaii, uh, during the Pearl Harbor attacks. And so that's why it did not get sank, because it almost definitely would have, because of you know the lack of armor. Um, and it completely missed out on the attack. So this will go down in history as the last time anybody would ever consider being on the ship lucky. Um, <laughs> after, uh, after this, there was not many conflicts in the Pacific theater that occurred that the Indy was not involved in. She fought in the New Guinea campaign, inflicting heavy losses against the Japanese, as well as retaking the Aleutian Islands from the Japanese. Um, during one of these engagements, the Indy came face to face with a Japanese cargo ship, uh, that had been dispatched to reinforce positions on A2 and Kiska, which is loaded with supplies, but also thousands and thousands of reinforcements. Um, the Indy demanded that the ship surrender because it's an unarmed cargo ship, to which it refused because it was Japanese, uh, so that it was sank with everybody on board. <laughs> they did not pull any survivors from that shit. Um, yep. Uh, this single-handedly probably ensured the ease of which the islands were taken by American forces as the Japanese losses to hold and resupply the islands grew too great, and they were largely abandoned. In fact, most American casualties 
from these uh, from the operation tree take the Aleutian Islands we're from friendly fire and uh, and frostbite <laughs> whoops yeah. sometimes, sometimes it's your own people you know yeah uh, especially when they're you know marines um, actually I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not I can't blame them um, it was like a visibility thing and they were told that there's like thousands of Japanese soldiers waiting on them so like whatever anything like move they just shoot at it <laughs> Well, like, as I remember, wasn't it something where, like, they attacked, like, a day late or something, and weren't the Japanese able to evacuate pretty much everyone off in, uh, in like, some fog or something? Yeah, there's very little fighting um, in the yeah. islands. Um, also, because, like, they realized uh, the, the, the I mean, a small side story, but the reason why the Americans waited so long to retake them is because they were pointless and, like, strategically worthless. <laughs> like, it, it was nothing except, hey, look, we control part of America, sort of. Um so after this, the ship was moved to Australia, refitted with even more guns, and sent out to battle, taking part in the battles of Tarawa and Macon Islands. Uh, things continued like this for years, and the Indy fought again and again at the Marshalls, the West Carolines, uh, Palalu, and New Guinea. There they went to Iwo Jima, the Marianas Islands, and the battle at the Philippine Sea, which became known as the Marianas Turkey Shoot, which pretty much destroyed the Japanese Navy for the rest of the war. Though somehow through all of this, um, the ship only dropped like two Japanese planes, which is kind of incredible when you think about how many fucking planes were getting shot out of the air that day. Um, <laughs> just not a lot of not a lot of good gunners on board, you know. Like, yeah, sometimes you hit, sometimes you miss, and apparently mostly they miss. I think it was one of those situations since like most of the carriers were taken down by American planes. This because sh- it was like a big um, uh, like. Naval aviation battle where the rest of the planes that were not those things just kind of sat back and were like, go planes. Uh, it's it's the reason why, uh, I don't know, like naval aviators, like there's not a lot of video games made after them nowadays because they'd be super boring. Uh, <laughs> uh, but despite <laughs> despite this, the ship pretty much charted every allied victory throughout the Pacific. Uh, the ship would be selected to go into what I assume was one last mission before retirement if this was a cop movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting too old for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> you see, America had been working on a secret weapon of mass destruction in the Manhattan Project. Their efforts at Los Alamos culminated with the Trinity Test on July 16th, 1945. Despite worries that it wouldn't work, the bomb nicknamed the Gadget, pretty much the same design as Fat Man would be that eventually be dropped on Japan, exploded really, really well. It, it, it did its job. Um... A small side note here, I'm not sure why I'm including. Uh, people think Robert J. Oppenheimer saw the mushroom cloud of this test, which he had you know, a large part in creating, and quote the now famous line from the Bhagavad Gita, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. But he didn't actually. He said that later, probably because it sounded cooler. Because uh, it, it, it does. Uh, what he said watching the explosion was, quote, if the radiance of a thousand suns were burst into once in the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. Also a quote from the Bhagavad Gita, and does not flow quite as well. I mean, I, I understand that the, your historical sp- perspective, Joe, and I, I appreciate that. But um, the hunt for Red October taught me differently. And uh, <laughs> as this is International Men's Day, and uh, we're all just very suburban white men here, uh, I'm going to have to uh, rely on that as the uh, superior source. That's fair. Um, as that had Sean Connery in it, and he is dead now, uh, I, I believe that makes him right. Yeah, I mean, frankly, how dare you speak ill of the dead, you fucking asshole. Yeah, he's slapping women in heaven now. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) 
Only hours after this test, knowing that the bomb worked, the Indy was loaded down with half of the world's supply of uranium-235 that existed in human hands at the time, along with the top-secret parts needed to complete the bomb known as Little Boy. The combined material is no bigger than two ice cream freezers, according to one sailor, which I have to admit is a very strange measurement uh, unit to use. I, I mean, that actually kind of weirdly makes sense, I feel. Yeah, I feel like if, you know, if maybe it was the cook who was like, oh, I saw those things go by. They look like our, our freezers. I ate ice well, cream from them and now my jaw fell off. <laughs> what I was going to say, too, like, I, I feel like particularly at that point, it was probably one of the few, like, one of the few things to keep a crew from killing each other on a on a ship, particularly on, like, a long fucking journey is the food. And so I, and I feel like I remember that, like, you know, Numerous pints of ice cream were definitely a thing that were loaded aboard ships, particularly like back in the day for that reason. Yeah, I mean, like one of the early um, sayings in like the British Royal Navy, I think it was in the 1800s, is the only thing that kept the Royal Navy in line was sodomy, rum, and the lash. I- ice cream is better than two of the three of those things. <laughs> we're not going to say two, which Joe? one. I really enjoy being whipped. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you like, heard it here first, folks. And like, what's funny is like nobody aboard the ship knew what the fuck was in there other than like the captain um, and only vaguely like he wasn't given all the details and two MPs with guns were, were stationed in front of them at all times. So like people were making bets about what was in there. Um, but like, no, I bet nobody was thinking, hey, I bet it's a bomb that will literally ruin the world from here on forward. <laughs> um, I'm sure somebody said it was a big bomb. Yeah, probably. Uh, they just it's didn't the know president's porn collection. <laughs> it's the p- it's the p tape. <laughs> um, after that, they were ordered to go as fast as they could to the Isle of uh, Tinian alone. Uh, she got there on July 26th, offloaded the cargo, and it was loaded aboard a plane that has now gone down as probably being the plane that has killed the most people in history, the Enola Gay. Um, after that, hey, the- hey, babe. The most people in history so far. So far. You're right. I apologize, uh, future listeners of this podcast who are listening to it from their bombed out shell hole that used to be, I don't know, Honolulu. Um, I'm just saying we got 42 days left in this year. So, yeah. God damn it. Every one of those 42 days is going to be dumber than the one before it. <laughs> um, so after this, the Indy was sent to Guam and then ordered to head towards the island of Leyte, uh, around 1,200 miles away, to finally join up with the U.S. Navy Task Force 95, commanded by Vice Admiral Jesse Oldendorf. The whole time, the Indy's been alone, which is really, really rare. Um, the commander of the Indy, Captain Charles McVeigh, was worried about making such a long trip alone through what had just previously been a war zone. Not yeah, to mention... That's not safe at all. <laughs> all of this has been incredibly unsafe. And I need to point out here that McVeigh has been like not comfortable with any of this. Um, but you know, the, he was worried about Japanese submarine uh, movements for very obvious reasons. Um, and there's a good reason that he was worried. Big cruisers like the Indy did not have sonar. Because uh, because they're normally part of task force or like they would be uh, like a destroyer or a smaller ship that did have sonar that'd be traveling with it. That meant that the ship would be blind to any possible submarines unless they could see them with their naked eye, which is not a great way to look for submarines. Yeah. Well, plus also like the other thing, too, is I, I imagine that based on the speeds that the Indy was going, even if they had had sonar, it wouldn't have made a big fuck of a difference. Yeah, because they're going as fast as this fucking uh, like ship they're would going. Go. Yeah, they're like going flank all the way across the fucking Pacific, like from point to point to point to point. Yeah. Uh, so 
McVeigh, being you know a decent naval commander, asked if he could have any escorts, and he asked of the tactical situation of the area. Uh, like, you know, when was the last time, you know, a Japanese sub was spotted? Uh, he was told, quote, things are very quiet by uh, Commodore James Carter, the commander of the Pacific Fleet's advanced headquarters. And he said the Japanese are, quote, on their last legs and there's nothing to worry about. There is a problem. Commodore Carter was lying to his fucking face. Uh, there had been a, uh, a destroyer sank the USS Underhill off the coast of the Philippines just a few days before by a Japanese sub, and McVeigh was not told about this at all. Also, also, you know, uh, we're talking about the Japanese. Like, even if it is backed into a corner, the Japanese were not like the type to just be like, "Oh, well, we better surrender." I guess, like, yeah, right. they, there's a sub out there. It's gonna sink some American ships, motherfucker. Like, they didn't even find them all. Also, not for nothing, but I mean, like, you literally just delivered a bomb to, I mean, you know, I'm not, like, you know, uh, endorsing the, the atomic bomb. It was the only thing that was prevented a large scale invasion of the islands theory, because that's been pretty heavily discredited. But regardless, like, you're delivering a bomb to, you know, nuke the fucking home island because, like, literally, the you know, Japan is not giving up at that point. Right. Like. That's, you know, maybe, maybe this is, this is not a nation that's going to give up real quick. No, like all of Tokyo has been firebombed and they're still like, yeah, we got this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, when it left, uh, when the Indy, when Indy left towards Leyte, nobody would ever see the ship again because Commodore Carter fucking sucks at his job. And so does the Navy. Uh, because on July 30th, the Indy was struck twice on her starboard side by Japanese torpedoes, fired from the sub I-58, commanded by Mochisura Hashimoto. Quite possibly the only good naval commander in this entire story. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later on. Um, now, Hashimoto had seen the ship hours before. Um, it was huge and easy to see on the horizon, because uh, as it was noted, it was a pretty lit up night. <laughs> so like the, he's like hey look a ship like from like however many fucking hours away it's probably um, like you know like a full moon or some fucking shit yeah um and the ship was all by itself uh so all he had to do was get in the right position and the indy would just float directly into his line of fire as he saw it through its periscope which he said is all he had to do he didn't even have to because it's it's pitch blackout like it's dark uh and like there was watch there's watchmen on board looking for subs, but really, what the fuck are they going to see in the middle of the night? Um, I mean, not a lot. Not <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, not enough. Not, uh, not a sub, I'll tell you that. Yeah, not this sub, at least. Um, the damage from the explosions was immediately known to be fatal to the ship. Furthermore, the ship began violently leaning over after it had been hit due to wartime modifications to her guns, which has made the entire ship entirely too top-heavy. Uh, that was an MRAP. <laughs> we hit a goddamn ocean-born IED. Um, are there rollover? Are there rollover drills for an entire battleship? Yeah, you just yeah. die. Yeah, it's it's not great. Let me tell you. <laughs> now the Indy was crewed by eleven hundred and ninety-five sailors when it went down, and three hundred were unable to get off the ship or killed by the explosion outright. The rest bailed out into the sea, but because of how fast everything happened, very few sailors had time to grab their life vests, and virtually none of the ship's life rafts made it out into the water. Only a couple did. So, Joe, just so you're clear, you're saying that... So, 1,100 men went in the water. 316 <laughs> men come out of the sharks, took the rest, June the 29th, 1945. More or less, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, just throwing it out there. 
Perfect. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons that not a lot of life-saving materials uh, made it out to the water is because the ship's interior communication systems, like they had a telephone system on board, had been completely taken out of commission by the blasts. So when the abandoned ship order was given, it was only given locally. Um, so... One of the charges we'll talk about later was that McVeigh did not order the ship to be abandoned on time, which was proven to be not true. Um, like his, uh, the second in command was like, hey, we should probably abandon ship. And he held off until a few minutes later and was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's get the fuck out of here. The problem was they could not uh, pass the order. There was no communication systems within the ship. Like intra communications were all fucked. Yeah. You don't, um, have the, uh, you don't have the one MC to just be able to like yell at everybody. Yeah, uh, this meant that sailors saw, oh shit, it's too late, we have to jump in. They did not have time to get their hands on a life uh, life preserver or a raft. It was like uh, so someone noted that people were standing watch all the way up until the water was like coming up at them. And like, oh, I guess we got to go in the water. <laughs> um, Still looking for a sub. Is there a sub down there and below my waist here? Yeah, right. <laughs> A few sailors who did manage to grab life vests looked over the edge of the ship and saw that most of the people in the water did not have life vests. Uh, so Navy procedure called for you to throw your life vest into the water and then jump in after it. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, one guy, seaman second class Don McCall, said that he thought if he tossed his into the water, someone would just steal it. So he dove in wearing it. And I guess there's a good reason that you don't do this is that when you hit the wire, they'll shoot right back up into your face uh, yeah. because it, because it knocked them the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the, particularly the old life vest. Like, I don't you know. I mean, that was <laughs> yeah, not something I ever it, fucking it, did. But like the old ones were essentially just like cork and a fucking, you know, fabric package. Yeah, and it's so, going like, to stop you, and you're probably jumping a good, like, 15 feet, so you're hitting that with some velocity. Like, there's a good yeah. chance you could just rip yourself right out of it if it's if you're high enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, the, like, you had the life vests, which we all know, and then there was life belts, which were significantly shittier, which some people had. Yeah, um, God, it was like a two-point harness. Might, yeah, you might do it, and you might be upside down, and then you're fucked. Yeah. Right, right <laughs> yeah. yourself. Yeah, it's not a great time. I can't say that happened for sure, but out of 900 people going into the water, we can say it probably happened at least once or twice of people throwing them on upside down and drowning themselves. Um, but around 900 people made it off the ship and into the water, and they found themselves stranded 280 miles away from the, from the nearest land. Uh, but they didn't just find themselves bobbing up and down in seawater, which does suck. But instead, it was a disgusting slicker of seawater oil and fuel that had all been dumped from the dying ship. This flooded people's airways, and you couldn't just cough it up like water. Like if you're like if you inhale water, you can cough it up. Uh, it sticks to your insides. So instead, dozens or maybe even hundreds of people found themselves stuck in the water and swallowing oil until they died. Yeah. Uh, however, this might sound weird. The mood of the men once they hit the water, and you know they didn't know how many people were dead quite yet, uh, was pretty high uh, because normally if your ship goes down. Um, you know that you send an SOS out, which they did. It was by a wart officer named Leonard Wood, not that one, uh, who <laughs> st stayed on the ship as it went down, repeatedly sending out SOS calls, an effort that cost him his life. So they knew that they're like at least three SOS calls went out. Um, so the sailors knew it was only a matter of time before someone would come and save them. Um, also, well it was 
considered kind of common and was like considered like a cool thing, law of the sea type deal. That when an enemy sub sank somebody, like uh, like a ship or a cargo ship, even a warship, they rendered aid to the sailors um, that made it into the water, uh, assuming that they were stranded and no longer in the fight. It's kind of like taking care of a wounded soldier. Assuming they're no longer fighting, you take care of them legally. Yeah. Unless you're Eddie Gallagher. Um, well, and it's, and it's also just like a... You know, like kind of like as you uh, as you introed in, you know, because the sea is going to fucking kill you anyway. There's like a fair amount of like, well, we're both kind of, uh, you know, floating around on this thing that is probably possibly going to like murder us at some point or another. So uh, I don't know. Here's a life preserver and a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it it was even in World War Two. This is not uncommon for this to happen. Even for a nation such as Japan, who in World War II was seemingly in a race with Nazi Germany so you could rack up the most war crimes in the shortest amount of time. This didn't mean that they would rescue them, as space upon submarines was obviously very limited. But it meant that they would throw food, water, life rafts, and other things out to stranded crews. Sometimes it even fire up flares and stuff like that so someone might see them before they fucked off and got out of there. Um, other, other times, medical aid was rendered to the wounded who might have made it off the ship. Um, and some like they would also give the people left in the water um, like a, a compass point like towards the nearest land and tell them like, hey, go that way. So they might have to save themselves. Also, like, you know, not for nothing, but if you're going to like sink somewhere, getting sunk in the South Pacific is not the worst. Because at least, you know, if you're like sinking and you're floating around in water that, you know, is around 70 degrees or so, like you have a fairly good chance of actually surviving for a long period of time versus, you know. Uh, best case scenario if you end up in the water in like the north atlantic in winter like you have like maybe five minutes i have some really bad news for the first thing that you said there that, yeah. that is not true <laughs> we'll find out why so this this is something of a regulation to save people uh and it ended in germany with the laconia order which also ended in a war crimes conviction um after a German sub was attacked by Allied planes during the Laconia incident, where German sailors were throwing supplies to the stranded inc- uh, crew and men of a British troop ship. Uh, to be fair, and to the credit of U-boats, the order went largely ignored, because they knew eventually it was going to be their turn to be stranded in the water, and they wanted the Allies to help them. So, for the most part, seems, U-boats it, kept doing that. It seems yeah. Navy really has it kind of, you know, like, hey, we're like, you know, the army will just execute you um, because we're dicks. But the Navy is at least like, you were a good, like, you guys crewed that ship really well. And we sank it and no hard feelings. You know, here, have some, have some aid. We'll see it. We'll, we'll see you next time. We'll rematch again when you build another one. And then we'll just shoot at each other forever. Especially U-boats. Um, we did an episode on those before. And they largely were the least politicized branch of the German military, even the Kriegsmarine, mostly because their lives were so miserable. Political officers didn't want to go fucking near them, uh, <laughs> which is a weird way to escape Nazism. Like, you know, in like Das Boot, they openly shit talk the government and, and Hitler. And there's like firsthand accounts that absolutely happen and officers didn't care. that's like the only place you're going to get away with that so like the idea that they completely ignore this order by uh carl donuts who was then convicted for war crimes about it um like hardly shocking that they would ignore that so it was less common for japanese crews crews to aid their victims at sea and when you look at their general treatment of pow's and humanity in general during the second world war that's hardly shocking but it did happen uh the destroyer akazushi was commanded by uh 
Officer Sansaku Kudo, and he ordered his men to rescue over 400 British and American sailors who were left to die in the Java Sea. Um, so, like, th- these things did happen. The, the, it was mostly a problem of logistics for the Japanese in 1945. Simply put, yeah. by the end of the war, the Japanese supply system had been completely and totally fucked. Um, a lot of their far-flung outposts resorted to cannibalism. Uh, in one case, almost ending ending up eating George H. W. Bush. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> so close. Yeah, like he was. Uh, he was in a bomber or a plane, and his plane went down. And um, it yeah, wasn't he he like a torpedo bomber or something like that. Something like that. And the crew bailed out. Uh, he floated one way. The rest of his crew floated the others, and everybody else in his crew got fucking eaten by Japanese soldiers. Ah. <laughs> uh. So close, Imperial Japan. So close. <laughs> it's it's always like that. Like we're, like Hitler fought in World War One. It's like if he'd have been like twenty meters over. Yeah. Oh, there's, yeah. a, there's actually World a, War II. a very uh, well publicized account of him nearly being killed by a British soldier while he was retreating, but the soldier decided not to shoot him because it was dishonorable. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> um. And then, so, and, then, and that soldier, Boris Johnson's great great grandfather. <laughs> um, so there's a good chance that the crews of the I-58 uh, probably just did not have any extra food. There's probably a good chance they did not have any food themselves. Uh, so Hashimoto did not end up being such a bad guy, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and he left the soldiers in the water by his own admission. He assumed that the Americans would be on their way to rescue the sailors and is afraid if he stuck around, he would just make himself a target. And like, remember, this is 1945. The allies in the Pacific had complete naval and air supremacy. This is a very reasonable fear for him to have for his uh, for the sailors under his command. Right. But it, it, it is absolutely be like uh, they run everything. We got a lucky shot. We better get out of here because they're the, the cavalry's on the way. Like, that's absolutely what I would assume, too. Yeah, and not to mention, this is the first and only time Hashimoto sank anybody. Like, um, <laughs> he had been out in missions beforehand, and each time he had to abandon them because he was about to get sank, or like he had to fucking dodge it or something, or like rough waters, fucked up his torpedoes. This is the only time he ever successfully launched an attack. And to be fair, it fucking ate him alive. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but the Allies would not be coming. In fact, Nobody would have any idea that the Indy went down for four days because a plane just happened to accidentally fly over the area and spot hundreds of men in the water. So that begs the question, how in the fuck did a Navy lose an entire cruiser in the middle of a war and was supposed to be peaceful seas? Joe, Joe, come on. You and I have been in the Army long enough to see all kinds of shit fall off the books that you're just like, how do you lose... A Humvee. I don't know. We just did. I want Somehow. you to picture the dumbest way you think this think that this would happen, and then accept that it's even dumber than that. Um, because it's not only incompetence, because of course part of it's incompetence, but it's also just dumb policies. So wait, Pacific- wait, 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 Joe. <laughs> not Joe. my army, Joe. Dumb policies in in the United States military, and I just. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I can't I can't accept that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's dumber than the dumb policies you're probably envisioning. Just hear me out. 
Pacific Command had told Vice Admiral Oldendorf and Admiral McCormick to expect the Indianapolis for a 10-day training session in the Philippines. McVeigh received the orders correctly, McVeigh being the captain of the Indy, but Oldendorf and McCormick did not. McCormick's staff had incorrectly decoded the communications, knew they did, but then did not ask for a retransmission, assuming they got it. So the admiral it's knew got, that, that close the, enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean this tracks. To be honest, this is where I get to tell you it gets worse. So the admiral <laughs> knew that the Indianapolis was headed to the Philippines, but not for what. While Admiral o- Oldendorf had no idea when it was actually supposed to show up. This is a problem when you understand that the Navy's policies for tracking ships of a certain size. You would assume that the Indy was supposed to use a radio check to tell Pacific Command where they were, what what their you know coordinates were at any given time, at least on a daily basis, right? You got to check. Yeah, you got checkpoints. You got to check in at the checkpoints. You would be wrong. <laughs> Instead, ships of that size were tracked using estimations and predictions. This meant unless McVeigh told them otherwise, they would just assume everything was fine and normal. But they, you're probably saying, Joe, but they sent an SOS. We'll get there. Uh, it, it was then reported as arriving on time in Leyte by the guy in charge of tracking ships in the Philippine Sea Frontier, which is like the command area, by one Lieutenant Stuart B. Gibson. Yes, a lieutenant was in charge of this. Well, so there's your problem. That meant while the sailors were now fighting for their lives in the ocean, according to the tracking board, the Indy was actually perfectly fine and safe in Leyte. However, Gibson actually saw in the port that there's no Indianapolis here. There's no fucking ship. And that should be enough. So he just assumed it was running late. And because nobody said anything, right? Like, well, McVeigh never called ahead and said that there's any problems. So he assumed it was just running behind, marked it as arrived on the board, and then left work. Hey, I mean, you know. Was this, and this wasn't even. This wasn't even a contractor. I expect that out of a contractor. Not only was this a commissioned naval officer, the war is still going on. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not the beginning. They know what they're doing by now. Well, I mean, it's but the, you're saying it's a commissioned naval end. officer. It's a lieutenant. You know, Fair. so I mean, it's like sort of a commissioned naval officer. So if that doesn't sound dumb enough, here it is in the Navy's own words uh, from the history.navy.mil's narrative of the circumstances of the sinking. This is a long quote. Her estimated position was plotted out each day on the board. On July 31st, the date on which the vessel was scheduled to arrive at Leyte, the Indianapolis was removed from the board in the headquarters of Command Commander Marianas and was recorded on the board of the headquarters of Command Philippine Sea Frontier as having arrived at Leyte. This was the routine method of handling the plot of combatant vessels. Since, in accordance with the orders and standards throughout the Western Pacific area, the Pacific Ocean areas, and the Atlantic, the arrival of the combatant vessel was not reported. Vessels of this class were assumed to have arrived at their destinations on the date and approximate time scheduled in the absence of information to the contrary. So, like so they it didn't says, have like a fucking like E4 out there just like on some like riprap just like with a set of binoculars just like looking. I just assume that like eventually the captain will show up in here and be like, hi, we're here. I don't know. Now, it says, unlike I do, that this error was noticed and acted upon. But that is hardly believable when you understand Lieutenant Gibson and literally every single person above him in his chain of command 
We're given a letter of reprimand. Um, also, this would have, if, if this was the case, the sinking would have been noticed within 12 hours. It was not. A little bit of uh, naval revisionism on their part to make themselves look slightly less shitty. So I've already said that Chief uh, Leonard Wood, again, not that one, because that Leonard Wood is, is a bastard, and this one was actually very good at his job, uh, sent out several SOS signals. Shouldn't this have alerted Gibson that, in fact, something had changed? Like, the ship is fucking sinking. Shouldn't have someone noticed that and responded in kind on the board? Does anybody want to take a guess on how of each of these three different signals went unanswered? Because they both went, uh, all three of them went unanswered in different Equally dumb ways. Oh, I'm going to say one, at least one, whoever was supposed to be listening to it was out of the room um, and like taking a shit or something. Uh, I'm going to say one is they believed that it was uh, fake, like it was it was fake news coming through through the wires. You're getting warm. Okay. Uh, And I don't know. Carrie, you got any? You got any? I mean, let me let me see. I'm thinking one was considered like either like a test or like a drill or like not real, uh, you know, like in some way, shape or form. Um, I'm thinking one. One, maybe they heard, but like they didn't actually like uh, they didn't actually write down because they weren't sure what they heard and they didn't want to be wrong. And I don't know. The third one. I don't know. What do, you, what do you got, Joe? Yeah, I don't know. What do you got? I'm yeah. actually shocked you didn't guess one of these. Okay, so first of all, I should point out the Navy publicly said that no distress signal was ever received from the Indianapolis. However, the classified reports say all three were received by three different stations, and all of them were ignored. One station commander was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Another had ordered his men not to bother bother him while he was sleeping. So when they got the distress signal, they ignored it, so they didn't get yelled at again. Cool. All right. And the third thought it was a Japanese trap and told his men to ignore it. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> We're still sixteen hours after the Indy had gone down. The Navy had decoded a Japanese transmission from Hashimoto that confirmed the sub had sank a cruiser-sized ship in the exact same area that the Indy should have been in when it sent that SOS, but still nobody did anything. Wasn't it like they were like, was it like one of the things where they were afraid that like the Japanese would figure out that they were decoding signals? I mean, that could have been part of it, but I think at this point, everybody pretty much knew. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so while the Navy sat around and did less than fuck all, 900 or so men stranded at the sea began to die. For many of them, the simple act of surviving required near superhuman efforts of strength and endurance. Seaman First Class Lyman, uh, Lyle Omenhofer said, quote, I looked down at myself. I noticed I was covered in this oil, and the first instinct is get away from it, you know, because if it catches on fire, you're really in trouble. The first impulse is to swim away, so I swam away. And this is a little after midnight when we went down. And then by probably about five or six o'clock in the morning, I was still swimming. I didn't have anything. I didn't even have a life jacket. I was swimming for five and a half hours. I would be fucking dead. I would be dead. Absolutely no way that I could stay anywhere for five hours like that. No. I can't tread water for 10 minutes, let alone five fucking hours. (laughs) You know, like some people say, like, you never know what you're going to do until you're put in that situation, which I have some experience with uh, myself. 
But if I was playing that situation, I would 100% be dead. There's no way that that coin is being flipped where I pull my ass through the water for five and a half fucking hours. I'm dead. I'm fucking dead. Yeah, I mean, like, the the standard thing, like, if you end up in the water is to be, like, essentially use whatever flotation device you have to, like, float in your back. Because, like, actually treading water takes a shit ton of fucking effort and calories and is, like, not something that you should normally do. Like, if so- you can at, at all help it. What did he? What did he eventually grab that he could stop swimming? Uh, a lot of people. So they ended up like circling what few life rafts they had, um, and a lot of people were like afloat on wreckage. Um, and you know, at this, uh, enough people would eventually die that there'd be some life vests to go around as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, oh, you uh, know, bonus there. Yep. Uh, hand me down. Uh, now remember how I said at first everybody was hopeful. That wore off pretty goddamn quickly. Uh, so the men hit the water a little after midnight, and a few hours later, the sun came up. This is this is where Shock said, "At least they went down the South Pacific." Well, they were straight in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no shelter and the reflective ocean all around them. Ooh, yeah. One guy said, "Quote: It was like having your head in the middle of a mirror with the sun beating down on you." It was the oh, hottest yeah. many of them have been throughout their life, and they were forced to tread water <laughs> to stay alive. Men began going mad from heat, while others dehydrated and without anything else began to drink seawater and lose their minds. Yep. Signalman yeah. first class Paul McGinnis said, quote, it was so hot, it was miserable. It was like hell. You couldn't wait for the sun to go down. But then when the sun went down, it was a relief. And then it would get cold, and you'd start to shiver, and people would start to die from hypothermia, and you couldn't wait for the sun to come back up again. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is, like, one of the reasons why every time you see, like, uh, you know, someone, like, quote-unquote, falls off a cruise ship, and then they say that they're still looking for them, like, a day and a half later, like, they're they're pretty much fucking cooked. Oh, yeah, you're fucked. Uh, you know, like, there's no, like, there's no, you know, they, they just, I mean, you know, it's like a, uh, a term of art, you know, they suspend the rescue, but, like, no, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're wicked dead. Yeah, you're very dead at that point. Um, And yeah, like, and these are people who are all in the picture of health. They're, you know, teens, early 20s, fit people who are used to living on a boat. Um, So like if anybody could survive being shipwrecked, it would be them. Um, And then men started to die from heat stroke. And when the sun went down, they would die of hypothermia. If that wasn't bad enough... Um, in case you didn't know, the human body really shouldn't just be um, subjected to seawater for long periods of time. Um, it actually causes your skin to begin to slough off. Um, yep. And not to mention, this is seawater that is tainted with oil and fuel. So um, their skin began to burn, blister, and come off um, from being in the water with the oil and the fuel. Men went blind from the sun, and some began to kill themselves. Others lost their minds so badly they began to hallucinate. An officer said um, that he saw a ship on the horizon, and he and a group of people just began swimming for it. There was never any ship on the horizon, and they were never seen again. Others shouted, quote, The Indy is sinking. There's fresh water in the galley. Let's go get it. And they <laughs> dove for the shipwreck and never came back up. Um, and like it, it, a lot of people were... I think I'd rather die in madness than die in knowledge, I guess, but... Ugh. I mean, neither one's a great way to go. Yeah. It's not the worst option. Uh, We're getting there. (laughs) 
Other sailors, armed with knives and other weapons, began to kill each other in blind, delirious rages, thinking they were Japanese soldiers or sea monsters. Others began to fight each other over food, and gangs began to form, and they tried to break into rations that were being held and distributed by the officers and NCOs, uh, which led to, like, wrath-born fights and shit. Um, and, like, it's interesting that most of the people in these gangs all died. Um, and that's not because, like, uh, retribution, but uh, it's something that we noticed in my um, Napoleon Invasion of Russia series. Yeah. In situations where, like, everything breaks down and people are fighting for their survival in military situations, it's almost always the people that stay in within the military's, um, like, they called it in Napoleon's, like, rallying around the flag or the standard. Those people had a much higher rate of, of survival. <laughs> than the people who are like, they're hoarding the food. Let's get it. Almost all those people die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not so, like, you know, when you think about it, I mean, it's like the, you know, it's like how the uh, Galt's Gulch people who tried to start their own libertarian society ended up failing. You know, like the, the, the whole idea of where you're just kind of like in it, in it for yourself all the fucking time doesn't actually work. No, you're yeah. not going to make it. libertarianism only works when there's already been a society and then you just decide that you want to leave it like be a libertarian caveman and see how far you fucking get man yeah yeah uh with napoleon's uh forces they found that like the people who stayed in their units and stayed together were much more likely to share the the meager resources that they had rather than hoarding it uh so like while you know obviously they all came back looking like they just escaped a death camp but they more of them survived um, rather than like a whole bunch of idiots knife fighting over a loaf of bread. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I know that, uh, what is it? Uh, Shep from Twitter has been like, you know, watching all the fucking, uh, like the doomsday preppers. Yeah. yeah the I doomsday love, I love prepper. Her, like, I love her threads. Yeah. And like, you know, and so one of the things that she talks about is like all these, like, you know, they, they have like, you know, 3000 rounds of ammo and like, you know, like 20 guns around them. But, at the same time, they have no way to, like, you know, filter water or, like, grow crops <laughs> yeah. or, like, you know, do anything the fuck else. And, I mean, it's the same it's the same basic impulse. You know, you have all these folks who are, you know, willing to, like, knife fight. And, you know, and, like, granted, like, you're also uh, in the middle of the fucking ocean, don't know that you're ever going to get saved. And so, like, there's definitely, like, mitigating circumstances. It's not like this is, like, your ideology. This is just, you know, you're kind of, like, bent on survival. But I think some of it was, like... The- you're being baked in the ocean and you know, yeah, your, your, fucking... your brain, your brain's a fucking scrambled egg. And like, you know, you're not like thinking straight, but at the same time, like you're not going to survive that way. I think a lot of it comes down to the people who stayed, uh, listening to their officers and NCOs getting rations and stuff like that. It's because they still had faith in the fact that like someone's going to come and get us. So like, you know, that yeah. made them rally around their officers and NCOs um, while the other people like it's every man for themselves, <laughs> you know, right. like you're, you're not. What do you have to look forward to? Like, okay, let's say you do survive an extra day, and then the navy comes. You think all these people are gonna forget the time you stabbed the guy over some fucking spam out on the ocean? Like, well, no. And, it, and and let's be clear here, though. However, uh, the uh, lions led by donkeys uh, party line is that uh, we still do not listen to officers. Um, so I just want to be clear on that particular point. You know, in this situation, I got to stand the officers and NCOs. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to. Especially, I, I do stand Captain McVeigh as well. We're getting to that. So this is... A, I, I've already said, wait, it gets worse. I get to say it again. Uh, because 
And then the sharks found them. Um, so, so would you say, so Joe, just to be clear, would you say that? Well, <laughs> you've been bitten in half below the waist. You know, just, you it, know. the sharks had actually been there from the beginning. But um, the sharks have been drawn by, obviously, loud noises like explosions and kicking and swimming, and obviously, the hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies that surrounded them. Um, so yeah, that like, all tend to attract some predators. Yeah, it's like you follow the checklist of, how, like, how can I be surrounded by sharks? Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the dead bodies kept the sharks away from the survivors for the, for the first couple uh, hours and days. Um, and, but... They uh they eventually ran out of those. Uh, like the sharks eventually br- busied themselves eating the dead. And according to one sailor, thank God there were so many dead people floating in the area. Uh, <laughs> uh, but those eventually ran out, and the sharks turned towards the living. Sailors, knowing the sharks were drawn by blood, abandoned the wounded and dying, uh, trying to separate themselves from them. And corn uh, like uh, the one book says they quarantined themselves away. Uh, if somebody died of their wounds or was looking particularly bad off, they would just kick them away into the ocean, trying to like draw the sharks away. Um, they soon learned the sharks were even attracted to opening a can of spam, which must have really fucking sucked uh, because a few cans had floated up from the wreck. And they're like, oh, fuck yeah, we have food. And then they cracked them and more sharks showed up. So they had to throw away all their meat uh, the, instead of ha- having to go hungry instead of risking a shark attack. Um, and, and here's arguably the worst part, in my opinion. The water is noted to be crystal fucking clear. This minute, oh. this minute, at any given time, the men could look down and see swarms of sharks just below them. One person said there was fucking hundreds, 15, 20 feet long. Sailors reported being constantly bumped by sharks as they decided which person they were going to pull under next. They were so powerless to stop an attack once it began that they decided sticking together might be the best course of action. So they could like, they said that uh, when someone gets snagged, they would try to like hit and slap the water and scream to try to scare it away, but it never worked. So they assumed like if we all band together, we'll look bigger and the sharks will be afraid. That didn't really work either. Um, That stopped them from losing a couple people every hour to the sharks. They had said, like, in the middle of the night, things would be deathly silent, and then you just hear someone scream, and then it would, they'd be gone. Um, it was estimated that of the hundreds to die while being uh, waiting to be rescued, at least 150 of them were taken by sharks. If even a fraction of this number is true, it makes it the most deadly shark attack in human history. And now, a couple days into this... <laughs> I think you've gotten you stunned me and uh, me and shocks into silence here. Just like I'm just contemplating that. I'm contemplating all of these horrors and just like I'm going to uh, need to take a horse tranquilizer to go to bed tonight. It's and like it's just, like every Joe. Everything you're describing to me is my worst fear. Like all of my worst fears are ocean based, and that's why I'm not in the navy. Uh, and that is you know why I don't go into the ocean as I talked about earlier. And then I also fucking hate sharks. Um, and also, uh, being beaten up by a gang, uh, too, just throw that in there too. Uh, Sharks are playing the knockout game, right? I could get, I I could get knockout ganged, uh, by a sailor in a cork, um, 
floaty. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah. So great. I should have gone with the Holocaust one. I think I would have been chipper after that one. <laughs> you know, and that's she, why I'm, I was so happy when you started off this episode. Like, actually, I'm terrified of sharks of the ocean. I was like, yes. <laughs> and see, I'm just here thinking. Here's to swimming with bow-legged women. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is several days into this, and Shocks, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, <laughs> but life jackets have, like, an expiration date. You can't just float them in the water forever. Well, um, I mean, once again, particularly back then, because, like, we're just, like, talking, you know, like, buoyant, you know, like, buoyant materials. We're not talking, like, you know, things that are, like, impervious to water, so shit gets soaked and you just start to sink. Yeah, like... About four days left into it, uh, their life jackets began to get waterlogged and useless. So now people would have to like scrounge up water, like uh, their life jackets on top of like other shit to try to keep floating because they would try to rotate through on the few life, um, the life rafts. So people weren't always out there floating. Um, but like soon there was no good life jackets left. Um, after only after four days, only three hundred and seventeen men were still alive. Out of nine hundred. Well, so at that point, you're just saying, "Farewell, and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. Farewell, and adieu to you, ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston." <laughs> So never more shall we see you again. <laughs> oh, that, laugh. that laugh is unsettling. Um, <laughs> now uh, there was a seaplane was the first one to see them and like yep. ca- call up and be like, "Holy shit, there's people in the ocean." Was it like um, a PBY Catalina or something like that? Something like that. And like yeah. the, the pilot was going to turn around, but instead like the water was so clear, he saw that people were being attacked by sharks. So he landed and then began like filling his plane with survivors and lashing people to the wings uh, to get them out of the water. But then that made it so he could not fly away. So he just kind of sat there until rescue ship showed up. Well, I mean, um, good on him. You know, just land. Yeah, I'm glad that it was a seaplane that you know somebody could just uh, land and float everybody on top. I assume that he had the working radio and then called for radio for help. Yeah, yeah. Um, so these men were all saved. Um, the the at least the last 317. Um, He's flipping it. about it, just like yeah. So th- these so guys like what- escape. These guys escaped horrible death. Fuckers. It's like yeah. one. It's like one quarter, right? Like more or less, like you know, like one quarter, like one fifth, something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this podcast routinely talks about like uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying. So, like you know, this put them kind of desensitized. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. I've I, I have a lions led by donkeys brain on me now. Um, when these men were all rescued, the navy began their investigation. Because you know goddamn full well they were not going to take fault for any of this shit if they could help it. So, before long, Captain McVeigh was facing court-martial. Sure, uh, why not? Like, why? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm shocked. He was charged with two counts. One, failing to order his men to abandon the ship, and one count of hazarding the ship. Now, the first count was immediately thrown out because other officers who survived, which there were not many, pointed out that, no, he had ordered to abandon the ship. It's just that he lacked any meaningful way to communicate the order. 
Uh, sometimes your luck is bad when you get hit by fucking torpedoes. Which leads us to the second charge, hazarding the ship. Uh, this charge was based on the fact that it w- they said that Captain McVeigh had not been ordering the ship to uh, travel in a zigzag pattern, which was Navy policy at the time. But he actually had been for a while. As his standing orders for the ship were to travel in a zigzag pattern when he safely could. And the, sh- the ship had just passed through rough seas with limited visibility. So he ordered the ship to instead travel straight ahead. Yeah. Furthermore, he had some cooperating evidence to this because the courts martial brought none other than Captain Hashimoto, who survived the war, to testify in defense of the captain. <laughs> Fuck. Hashimoto helpfully pointed out uh, that zigzag pattern or no, the India was fucked because it was alone. He couldn't see him. Um, and uh, like it was a huge big deal. They flew who was a POW at the time. Uh, all the way to the United States to testify. And like Hashimoto said that he had been treated like a uh, fellow officer and not a POW. So he was like grateful to the Americans to that. Uh, but like people really pissed off that they flew him over there. But yeah, he was like, yeah, there's nothing he could have done except possibly spot me that would have stopped me from sinking him. Or like uh, barring something else that had happened to Hashimoto before, which was like a complete torpedo failure. Like he had attempted to fire torpedoes at a different ship and they just didn't launch. Like, you know, he said, yeah. like, you know, in my naval experience, this ship was doomed. Um, like effectively, the Navy had hazarded the ship. Uh, and like in his testimony, uh, in his, uh, his testimony, like he was like, I thought it was very strange that the ship was by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like you guys fucked up in a different way and not, uh, not what you're saying that this guy did. Right. Um, McVeigh was convicted, uh, because of course he was. Uh, but then Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz overturned the order and returned him to active service. And he retired in 1949. Um, the US, now, the U.S. lost 380 ships during World War II. Out of all those ships that were lost, Captain McVeigh was the only captain to be courts-martialed for losing his ship under his command. Hmm. Um, however, McVeigh's life was fucking ruined. Um, he personally blamed himself for what happened to the men under his command, even though in reality it was the Navy's fault and it was a war. Things are going to happen. Um, this was made worse by the fact that several families of the dead would call him and leave angry voicemails or send him letters that said things like, quote, Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would be much lo- would be a lot merrier if you had not killed my son. Ooh. Yeah, Jesus fuck. Turns out people have always been shitty. Uh, you don't need, you don't need Twitter to send fucking shit posts. <laughs> um, and then his wife died of cancer. So uh, in 1968, he shot himself in his backyard with his old navy pistol, uh, clutching a small figurine of a sailor that had been given to him when he graduated from the naval academy. Jesus now, fucking dark. I do not want to leave everybody here wanting to do that. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna lighten the blow here a little bit. This concerns Hashimoto. Now, the war came to a close and he went home. Um, He was disgusted by the war. And, you know, the only ship he ever sank was the Indianapolis. And he had no idea what had ever happened to the Indianapolis until he went to trial and learned about what happened to the sailors that he had sank. Uh, So you just see him like like excitedly going, oh, and then like marking a one somewhere for himself. Like, oh, I got one. Probably. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's probably really excited he sank that cruiser because uh, it was one less that he'd have to be fighting. 
Uh, and or, he was hor- or at the very least, least like happened. I'm not going to be relieved from command because I like haven't sunk anything for like the last six times I've gone out. <laughs> right. Um, so after the war, he became a Shinto priest. Um, you know, Fuck. then he traveled to the U.S. to meet the survivors of the Indianapolis at Pearl Harbor. Once there, he prostrated himself on the ground and said through a translator, quote, I have come here to pray with you for your shipmates whose death I have caused. Uh, to which the gathering of men helped the old man back to his feet and told him that they forgave him. Oh, Af- that's nice. Man. Afterwards, he assisted the Indianapolis survivors in their attempt to exonerate McVeigh um, long after the captain had shot himself. This included writing letters to the Senate Armed Service Committee where he said, Our people have forgiven each other for what this terrible war and its consequences have caused. Perhaps it's time your people forgave Captain McVeigh for the humiliation of this unjust conviction. Hashimoto died at the age of 91 on uh, 25th October 2000. Five days later, a bill to posthumously exonerate Captain McVeigh was passed by the U.S. Congress and signed by President Bill Clinton. We uh we certainly do love to apologize fifty years later. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, America America's real good at that. Just like has enough time passed that like people will feel better about it, but also nobody really gives a fuck. Yeah, that's fine. Well, I mean, in fairness, it is usually significantly delayed, but is also very insufficient when it happens. <laughs> um so I mean I think that makes up for it. Yeah. Um it's it sucks because like he's obviously was scapegoated. Yeah. Um, but like, it's, it's always kind of shocking to me when like, you know, like Hashimoto literally went out of his way. Uh, he, he turned into like the most pacifist pacifist who's ever pacifisted, um, <laughs> you know, like dedicated his life to like begging for forgiveness for like the one, like he's, he's, he constantly talked about for the misery that I've caused. Like you sink one ship, bro. Like, <laughs> you know, your admirals, which many of whom were, you know, hung or killed themselves, like deserve this. Uh, he was just, you know, a line officer. And it's, it's always interesting watching um, how veterans of other wars, you know, wars that we consider like the good ones. Granted, he was, you know, a Japanese officer at the time. So like not their good one, uh, like how they've always squared things with themselves and how, you know, they've become vehemently anti-war and even going so far as to like face the crew of the Indianapolis is incredible to me. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. like I cast you into the water to be eaten by sharks. <laughs> but Joe, does he have a podcast? He is dead. So no, well, well, there you have it. I mean, that's how we deal with it. We just have podcasts. He should have gotten a podcast. Yeah, he missed he could- the wave. It was unfortunate. He almost could have made Joe Rogan show. If he <laughs> stuck around a few more years. Um. So, whoa! You sank a whole ship. What was that like? You Jamie, DMT pull while up you're ship in- dicks. <laughs> pull up, pull up the weird Japanese ship porn. Um. So, guys, we have a little thing on the show called questions from the Legion. D- Joe, tell me more. I've never heard about it before. So that is when you ask us a small but funny or important question that we can answer to end the show on possibly a high note. Not always. Uh, this one is not one of those times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, user Marcus from the Discord, if you would like to ask us a question, uh, you can slide into our DMs on Patreon or ask us in the Discord for one whole dollar. Um, ask, what is one local political issue you are really into but uh, does not get the mainstream attention you think it deserves? 
I honestly can't answer this question. Is I have just moved here, and the only local political problem we have is the coronavirus that I am aware of. So <laughs> I'll leave this one to you two. Uh, you know, our uh, in St. Louis, North City is just such an absolute hole, and like it's it is the there's a ghetto of St. Louis. It, it's uh, it's North Side, and there. There's just been so much fuckery up there with people who buy the empty lots and then do nothing with them. Um, we've got uh, the NGA, the government building is trying to go in down there. But like also some parts of North City are like really, really nice. So it's just a weird like all the the entirety of, of, of the North side, like the history of it and like where it is and like how it continues to get fucked over in, in local politics is just a it's just absolutely wild to me. And like just, you know, our, the projects that we used to have in, in St. Louis and like how under like a majority um, uh, majority African-American community, there's like nuclear waste. And there's just like, they're not going to clean it up. There's no point to it. But also there's an underground fire that might get to it at some point in time. There's a lot of fucked up things going on is what I'm saying in St. Louis. (laughs) A wild uh, underground fire has appeared. You know, so, and and every once in a while, somebody's just like, will will like read something about St. Louis, like offhandedly. And they're just like, Jesus Christ, did you know about this? Like, yeah, man, that's just, it's everything here. Everything's insane. Um. It's a beautiful city, but goddamn. So, so that's what I would go with, I guess. I guess the local political issue uh, that uh, I, I guess I'm from Detroit, so I'll use that one. That ties in really well to that. As most people are aware of uh, who Mike Illich was, he's dead now. But you know, he's the guy who owned Little Caesars. Uh, he owns the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, he's an absolute fucking massive titan of landowning in the city, um, and he's been doing shit like that since before any of us were born. Um, now it's all controlled by his family, but um, he buys up very large tracts of land and then just sits on them um, and like turns them into parking lots or like he'll buy up um, uh, like turn of the century historical buildings and then fucking demolish them saying that he's putting in like apartments and then it'll just be a parking lot. Um, he's just sitting on them uh, and like he's a fucking bastard. That's why I've, like I'm a diehard Detroit Red Wings fan, but it's fucking begrudgingly because he's a fucking ghoul, and the world's better off without him. Shocks your turn. <laughs> I would, I'm surprised um, it wasn't the RoboCop statue. No, nah, that shit slaps. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's fucking awesome. Um, I don't know. I mean, the there's a lot of like options I probably could choose. I mean, one of uh, one of them that uh, is kind of near and dear and sadly to my heart is uh, the ranked choice voting referendum and. Uh, the the ballot question in Massachusetts recently uh, was defeated, and uh, that was really unfortunate because that was actually that was the the pro- probably the proudest vote that I I made of the like the last November election because I was really looking forward to ranked choice voting. Um, and and similarly, like another one that uh, got defeated not too long ago was uh, safe staffing for nurses, uh, which was another one that was like really close and like something that I really cared about that ended up getting defeated because of a. Uh, a lot of fucking money that got poured into the race by uh, um, healthcare companies and uh, you know nursing and like other companies. Um, so I mean that that is also terrible. And I mean the other one that right now is stalled is any after the uh, the demonstrations and you know the uh, you know the protesting of the summer. You know all chance at police reform is essentially stopped. 
in the Massachusetts yeah. legislature right now, which is like really fucking disgraceful because we have a super, you know, the Democrats have a super majority in the fucking legislature in Massachusetts, despite Charlie Baker. And uh, there's still no real effort to actually uh, achieve any sort of uh, and like any sort of actual like, you know, police reform at any level right now. But um, with all that said, the one that I'll, I would probably go with is, um, you know, kind of similar is, is, you know, to what Francis said was affordable housing. I mean, I think that's something that like, you know, in in Massachusetts, I mean, Massachusetts is like, you know, it's not readily as well known, but alongside New York and maybe the Bay Area is one of the most unaffordable areas to live in the entire fucking country. Yo, and, Honolulu says hi. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Honolulu, I mean, Seattle, um, you know, I mean, there's definitely other places, too, that are just like wicked fucking unaffordable and are not places that like any normal human being can like actually afford to buy a place to live and like not just rent for their entire lives. Yeah. And it's really fucking, you know, it's 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 fucking awful that, that like that's the case. And it's, you know, it's something that doesn't get any, you know, any exposure when it does get exposure, you get uh you know, folks asking you why you you're not in favor of uh, you know denser developments, but it's just for like fucking luxury condos that right. all look all look the same and end up as like you know mixed use developments in neighborhoods that you used to love that have you know a fucking spin studio and a juice bar downstairs and uh, you know a bunch of condos upstairs that all have like you know uh, marble kitchens and you know whatever the fuck else and. Uh, you know that's not an actual way that you should structure a society. So that'd be that that'll be my real answer right there is affordable housing. Yeah, that's that's something real bad here. Um, like fucking have a Disney resort that that's its own city, but you know you, there's no fucking affordable housing. Cool. You just uh, live on the beach. Yeah, that's unfortunately a lot of people have no choice. Yeah. Uh, but but then Honolulu PD comes and kicks you off uh, because you're scaring the tourists. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, same here, but you're in fucking Boston in, you know, November and December, which is even more grim. Yeah. Um, so that's a great way to end this horribly depressing episode. <laughs> um, now, this is where I, I like to thank you guys for coming on. And I would like to say next time it won't be as depressing, but we both know that's not true. Um, but any like, thanks for uh, for ma- letting me put you through this horrible uh, mental crisis. It's great. Um, Nick needs time off from this because he, he's a poor boy and has been dealing with this for almost three years. We have to, we have to like take the burden off of off of Nick's brain. Yeah, he has a P- PTSD by proxy. He has a union mandated mental health break every other week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, thanks, God bless guys, him for it. it's always great. Um, and until next time, um, don't be in the navy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs>